Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Nashville home studio defender Lyd Shaw. First of all, is the CD sales increase just a mirage? Back in podcast number 403, I told you how CD sales had increased last year. This was all based on MRC Data's year-end report, and it said that CD sales were actually up 1.1%, which is pretty amazing. I was a little duped by this, and I apologize for maybe duping you too, because really, when you look closer at all the data, you find that CDs really fell a lot between 2019, 2020, 2021, fell by 26%. Now, if you look even further, you find that last year, Adele accounted for 2.35% of all CD sales, Taylor Swift for 2.2%, and BTS for 2.5%. You add them all up, and that's 7%, which means that really CD sales have continued to fall. And it actually gets worse than that, because all of these CDs were packaged with musical or non-musical collectibles, like a box set with a t-shirt, So really, people weren't just buying the CDs, they were buying the total package. Physical media is only 9% of recorded music. And when you think about it, digital downloads are 6%. And we know that digital downloads are dropping like a rock as well. So it looks like CDs are going away. It's just a matter of time. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on audio mixing, production, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club, along with what makes a song a hit, Q&A, and advice sessions every month. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Are we seeing the end of the smart speaker? I think I told you before that I had dinner with the head of Amazon Music a few years ago, where he told me that the music division's secret sauce is voice. They had just created a new category with their smart echo speakers, and they've sold millions since 2015. That said, internal Amazon docs have found that Alexa has failed to hold consumer interest, and sometimes people lose interest in as little as a week. What Amazon really wanted from this is they wanted a smart speaker owner to be able to order directly by saying, Alexa, buy more dog food. Alexa, I want a new clock radio. However, it turns out that people only use that function once and then they never come back again. What most people are using it for are very simple tasks like getting a weather report, or playing a song, or setting a cooking timer. By far, one of the biggest barriers to all this is the privacy concern, and that's due to the fact that the smart speaker is on all the time. It's recording everything you say, and people are afraid that someone's going to be listening to it. Now, whether they are or not is immaterial. Just the fact that people are afraid of having their privacy intruded upon is a really big deal. Now, Amazon employs 10,000 people in the Alexa division, and the company has actually lost $5 on every smart device. So what they did is they tried more features, like 
displays on devices or Alexa-enabled headphones or car apps. Nothing has increased engagement. So it looks like, in the end, smart speakers just aren't that useful after all. My guest this week is engineer Lyd Shaw, who's the owner of the Toybox Studio in Nashville and host of the great podcast Recording Studio Rockstars. Lidge has also been battling with the Nashville Metro Council since 2015 on behalf of home studio and business owners in the city to keep their businesses open. The city of Nashville, which ironically is the moniker of Music City, had a zoning ordinance on its books claiming that a home studio or a business is in violation if a customer comes to the house. In July 2020, Nashville finally made home studios and other home businesses legal, but the win also included a sunset clause that would cause the bill to expire three years later unless they voted to keep the law active in January of 2023. In 2017, Lidge and other Nashville home business owners filed a lawsuit in an effort to provide the right to work from home, which has now made it all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court. During the interview, we spoke about his legal battle with the city of Nashville, installing his new studio, auditioning the Phantom Focus system, selling his iconic console, and much more. I spoke with Lidge via Zoom from a studio in Nashville. Let's just recap what's been going on here. If someone's coming into the story late, I want them to know where you've been with this, because this has been quite a journey. Yeah, this has been a long journey for me. Um, at this point, it's been seven years I've been fighting this. So very quick recap. In 2015, I received a cease and desist letter from the city for operating my home studio in Nashville, of all places, in Music City. And then I ended up deciding to fight back against that. And I teamed up with the Institute for Justice in the Beacon Center of Tennessee to file a lawsuit a couple of years later in 2017. Um, with a co-plaintiff, Pat Rayner, who is a hairdresser and was also received a cease and desist letter. So we started that process, and that took us through the local courts, the Chancery Court, where we um, lost and the judge ruled in favor of, of Metro, said we, you know, we didn't, just didn't rule in, in our favor in that case. And then we decided to file an appeal and take it to the um, Tennessee Appellate Court and we're going through that process. And then also the judge at the appellate level ruled in favor of Metro, um, which is a fancy way of saying we didn't win our, our home studio case here and our home business case in Nashville. And then in 2020, of all times, during um, all sorts of things going on here in Nashville, the uh, the um, tornado came through and devastated Nashville. Uh, the, the, the uh, black lives matter, um, protests and riots were going on downtown and then the pandemic hit and everything was shut down during that whole process, a new bill was presented and we were able to get behind that bill. And this was a bill to take the homes, the home business ordinance in Nashville and modify it to make it more flexible. So in Nashville, we had this limitation that said, yes, you could have a home business and work from home and you can get a permit to do that, 
but you can only be there by yourself. You can't have a customer come to your house, which obviously doesn't work for a home recording studio if you want to be able to record people in front of your microphones. So in 2020, along came this opportunity with a new bill that was presented. And I saw that and said, you know, I got to put everything I got behind this and try and get this thing passed. And so that involved all sorts of things like um, mobilizing public hearings and, and um, you know, getting the people out to speak to the Metro Council. And I, and I did a petition that got hundred about 160,000 signatures on it from all over saying that they should pass this thing and they should let people work from home. And so in July of 2020, we actually passed that new legislation, which was a huge win for Nashville. And this, you know, for the first time in 20 years made home recording studios actually legal if you wanted to work from it and have somebody come to your, to your home studio in Music City. Uh, but they put a caveat on that, which was uh, something called the Sunset Clause, which said that in three years, which is going to be um, less than a year from now, uh, in January of 2023, the new law expires and unless it gets approved by the Metro Council again, then it will just go back. It'll revert back to the old law, which says everybody's illegal. And, you know, tough luck if you spent the last three years trying to invest in your home studio and work from home. You can't do it anymore. So at that point, um, I said to my legal team, I said, you know, well, if we don't really have a solution for this yet, why don't we just continue our lawsuit and we'll just keep trying to take it as far as we can go. Um, and at least we've got a shot at doing that too. And, um, you know, cause of course, if we win the lawsuit, then that's, that helps to, um, you know, that, that, that would be a huge help for future legislation and just be, it'd make it easier, I think, for the council to just say, okay, this is already, you know, the courts have decided, so um, we should make this a permanent law. And so by, by continuing our lawsuit, we made it to the Tennessee Supreme Court, which is actually, the hearing is actually happening tomorrow as, as we do this interview. So I don't know if this will come out a little later than that, but um, very, very excited. I, I got it my day in the Supreme Court, um, and that is going to be taking place in Knoxville and then live streamed over YouTube uh, because they're still doing virtual court hearings and things like that. But that, I don't know if that was a, a short recap, but that's pretty much the recap that brings us, uh, brings us to today. Seven years you've been doing this. Seven years, yeah. Now, I think if they had told me in the very beginning, hey, by the way, this could take seven years, I might've been like, oh, screw that. I'm just gonna go do something else. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I bought my house here in East Nashville and in 2000, and I had already been living and working out of my home studio for 15 years at the point at which the city came along and said, you know, sent me a cease and desist letter and said, you can't do this, gave me a slap on the wrist. And it wasn't due to any complaints from neighbors or anything like that. It, it happened to be somebody who randomly filed a complaint because they, I think they actually wanted to start a computer repair business in their own home. And when the city told him they couldn't do it, he just went around on the internet and like found other people's websites and filed a complaint kind of through me. And I, I don't know who else under the bus and said, um, Hey, how come these guys can do it? You know? So it was, it was frustrating, but you know, I had been operating my home studio at first in my house. And then later um, when I sort of finished out the, you know, acoustically finished out the 
the garage, which was a usable, livable space. And, um, and that's where I've been. And it had been 15 years of making records and we'd even won a Grammy at that point, you know, as a studio. Um, we did a record that was mixed at the studio for Mike Ferris called Shine for All the People. And, um, the, you know, the, the recording Academy sent me a plaque that's on the wall of the studio, which apparently is not allowed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when you think about it, it's so ridiculous. Music City will not allow you to do music in your home with clients. Yeah, pretty crazy, pretty crazy. When we were thinking of, you know, catchy phrases to help sort of spread the um, the awareness, uh, my sister had a, a good one when she said, like, don't be, you know, hashtag don't be muted in Music City. <laughs> yeah, It's like, yeah. But um, we ended up uh, during that whole process of fighting this thing and filing the lawsuit, you know, I realized we needed to have a really simple message to get people aware about this. And while the restriction in Nashville is for all home businesses, you know, the business that I know well is making records. And so I just came up with the, the I remember thinking about, you know, save the whales. I was like, save the whales. I was like, save home studios. Come on. So anyway, we have a website now called savehomestudios.com. And I just try and update that with, you know, the the story of this whole fight and what's happening there and you know if you want to get a t-shirt or something like that to help out we got some cool t-shirts i'm wearing one right now did you get any pushback from maybe some of the commercial studios we really didn't you know we really didn't in fact um commercial studio owners that i know had been supportive and helpful they didn't necessarily go out of their way to fight the fight for us but while there has been, you know, a backstory and history of commercial studios fighting home studios, if you go back 30 years into the 90s and, and maybe the 80s in Los Angeles, I think that kind of stuff was happening. You know, this was this was 2020. Everybody's working from a home studio. Everybody who's got a commercial studio also has a home studio back at home and works from there as well, you know. So I think everybody understood that this is a, a new time and a new era. And in fact, when I helped mobilize the, the last uh, public hearing in front of the Metro Council, I had sort of said everything I could say because I'd been up and spoken to them so many times, um, whether it was trying to rezone my property or, or do a public hearing about this bill. And this was at a time at which, you know, the, the or spring of 2020, so they were already doing sort of hybrid um, Metro council meetings where most of the Metro council was zooming in and, and joining the joining by video. And I just looked at them and I said, look, you know, the irony is not lost on the rest of us here in Nashville that the majority of the, the Metro council is joining us from their homes tonight during this Metro council meeting to vote on whether or not the rest of us will be able to work from our homes tomorrow. <laughs> and that really, I think that really helped, you know, they, they, people just saw that it made sense to let everybody be able to work from home at that point. Especially since, well, after the first big COVID surge that we had and everybody started to work from home. Right, exactly. And that's really what I was, you know, pointing out to everybody. It's like, you're encouraging us to work from home. So, so let us at that point. And it's still like that where people are refusing to go back to the office and many employers are even saying, ah, there's no need for this. If you can be just as productive at home, why not? 
But again, the difference is if you're working by yourself at home, it's one thing. If you're bringing clients in, that's that's another thing. But if nobody is complaining, I mean, the, the big thing here has always been if you have a late session and you have five people getting in their cars and slamming doors at two o'clock in the morning, the neighbors get upset. And this is, I think, anywhere that has, you know, any kind of business so there's always been lots of effort to keep that to a minimum because it's like, you know, let's just be nice to our neighbors and they'll let things be. And that's usually been the case. Yeah. I mean, being a good neighbor is always the best defense. You know, it's just, just you know, the expression, good fences make good neighbors. I think it's just, you know, that, that might sound like it's sort of uh pushing your neighbor back. But really, it's just this idea of saying, hey, look, this is where I live. This is where you live. I'm going to respect you. You know, uh, having conversations with your neighbors, uh, going around to your neighbors and just saying, I'm here. You know, I do my thing. If if anything ever bothers you, here's my number. Just call me. Just send me a text and tell me that, you know, some something was loud or or somebody parked where you didn't want them to park. Now, with all those things said, those are just simple, um, you know, good neighbor tactics and strategies to make sure that you can really get along with your neighbor if you are running a home studio. Um, but with that said, also, you know, our our city here, while, while they changed the law, it does have limitations on it. So all the limitations that are included in our home uh, business, our home occupancy uh, permit here in Nashville, they're all things that address all those issues. Like you can't be too loud. You can't burn rubber tires in your backyard and make it smell terrible in the neighborhood, you know, and you can't park, have people parking all over the streets. You just, you know, if you've got a driveway, use it, have them come park there and, and be a good neighbor. Now you're updating your studio. You must be very confident that you can keep going. I'm going to, I mean, I spent seven years, man. I have, I have no intention of stopping this fight. You know, I'm just going to keep it going. I moved to Nashville, to Music City, 30 years ago to learn how to record and make records. And part of the message that I got as I finished school and decided to stay in Nashville, stay in Music City, was that, you know, one of the options people have and we're taking advantage of and we're, we're building and growing is, you know, you can have a home studio and you can kind of work from your home studio. And this this worked really well, especially if you're interested in working with you know, local musicians with lower budgets, if you wanted to do indie music, you know, if you wanted to just work with independent bands and musicians and stuff like that, not everybody has a big major label budget to go into big major label budget studios. Those need to be there. No, no doubt about it. And, and the big, great studios are big and great for a reason. You know, they, they just are amazing, especially here in Nashville. We have incredible studios. Um, but there's also a need and an opportunity for the home studio thing. And so, you know, I saw that and that that's really what I wanted to do. And, you know, I've spent 30 years here, uh, more than that now, I guess about 32 years now at this point. And I've invested my entire life and career and all my money, you know, everything I've earned has just gone back into being a resident here owning a home, keeping it up, building a home studio, having, having what I need there. And it just, it just wouldn't be fair to pull the rug out from under me or anybody else who's in that position who's trying to make a living. You know, we, we are the fabric of, um, of this city, you know, and, and 
make it what it is. And just like, just like my other neighbors are, you know. Well, tell me about the new studio. Oh yeah, the new studio. So I'm really excited about it. Um, I've been working with an incredible studio designer named Carl Tatz, who you know. Oh yes. Um, and he he used to take me uh, and and some of my friends like Robin Eaton, my mentor. You know, we'd go over and we'd see some of these studios that he was building around Nashville. Um, many of them home studios, and um, in fact, they probably all were at that point. But um, he had this system that he would, he calls his phantom focus system. And it's a combination of a really well-designed room treatment for a control room and extremely careful placement of monitors and like really, really putting the entire thing together very carefully and professionally so he now has a monitor called the PFM HD 1000 uh, Phantom Focus Reference Monitor. And that's what he put in my studio. So these things go in on beautiful heavy stands that are like laser aligned into position and carefully calculated so that the positioning is perfect for them. The imaging is incredible and wide and three-dimensional when you sit in the mixed position. And the response of the speakers is accurate from um, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz and above. And so it's really an amazing experience. You know, I've never had monitors like this in my control room. And I had seen, um, you know, Carl do this in other, other studios. And I knew that one day I wanted to be able to do this myself. And an opportunity came up um, in 2020 to actually get the speakers and start transitioning my studio. And, and I just, I just, you know, I thought I was going to put speakers in, but then we started talking about changing the room and the design and the look. And every time we did something, it looked so amazing, um, you know, working with Carl on this, that I just said, let's keep going. Let's do this. Let's do that. And we've redone, um, you know, it's all acoustic stuff. It's all a treatment inside and the look and the aesthetic of the studio, but it really, really sounds incredible now. And it's a lot of fun. And part of that was making some, um, you know, some difficult choices as far as ergonomic changes for my studio setup. So as you might recall, I have um, a famous one-of-a-kind custom-built MCI console that was built by G. Parnett in, in the 1970s for Criteria Studio C down in Miami. And it lived there for a decade, and it made a whole string of famous records, including Hotel California for the Eagles, and the Bee Gees records, Staying Alive, Stay Alive and Saturday Night Fever, um, their big hits, uh, Grant Funk Railroad, um, We're an American Band, um, you know, just all kinds of stuff. The Grease soundtrack was done on that. But, and it's a, it's a wonderful board and it's a really, really great sounding console, particularly the mic preamps is what I used all the time. But ergonomically, it wasn't quite going to work in the front center position with the new speakers. So I had to make the difficult decision of letting go of this, you know, historical piece for my control room and switching it out with an Argosy console where I can carefully lay out um, digital controllers for mixing in the box. And, uh, and now that console is at a, at, at a new home with the dealership um, retrogearshop.com here in Nashville. And we're starting the process of um, getting ready to sell it and, and find a new home for it. But so that was tough because this is a really wonderful piece of equipment in the studio. Uh, but I think a lot of us 
are faced with that question with our studios too, where we think, you know, should we, you know, are there things that we love using? Which ones do we want to keep? How do we keep them? Which ones should we maybe let go of? And how should we transition? But I think you would appreciate this too, um, Bobby. You know, I'm I'm 54 now, and we've done enough time in front of a Pro Tools computer screen. We've done enough editing. We've done all this stuff that we know how physically challenging it can be if you're not set up right and if you're doing all this work, but you're sort of like a little bit off, you know. And I used to um, I used to mix and I tried to put my keyboard up on the console in a funny way and stuff. And I'd have to look up at the screen too much because it needed to be up above the meter bridge. And I, my neck and my back would just kill me, you know. Yeah. And so I switched to this new setup with the Phantom Focus system using the Argosy desk. And I've got the, uh, one of Carl's e-chairs, this Phantom Focus e-chairs. So it's essentially like a really well-designed drafting chair where you can, you know, it's a mesh thing that you can sit in. So it's very comfortable. You don't get hot and uncomfortable and, and you can um, set it up and it leans forward a little bit while you're working. And, um, and so far, mixing and editing has not, I've had no checking um, shoulder and neck pains at all. So that's, I know I'm getting real geeky on the ergonomic stuff, but this stuff really matters to me. And I think it probably does to a lot of people. Yeah, it's overlooked way too much. As a matter of fact, everybody thinks of the gear and they don't think of the accompanying pieces that maybe are more important in the long run. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I want to keep doing this for, you know, easily another 20 years. So I don't want to, I don't want to set up a studio that's going to be hard for me to work in. I want to um, keep it fun and and really get into the flow. And and like many people, I've transitioned to mixing in Pro Tools and mixing in the box. And I box, and I just keep finding it. It sounds great. It works great. But a lot of the challenges were just simply like making the right decisions with the tools that I had inside the computer. And so now having this ergonomically set up, I've got a wonderful um, Avid S1 controller. I'm probably going to get another one. And then right next to that, I have the SSL UC1 controller and that combination so far is pretty exciting because i can just kind of go from track to track and immediately grab you know eq and compression settings and um and you know faders and, and adjust levels and i'm um i'm getting into it at this point so i'm still becoming you know i'm no expert at, at it yet but i'm i'm deep in the learning stage but so far i find i can i can mix and work without having to look up at the computer screen that much and that's that's really exciting for me. You know, uh, speaking of Phantom Focus, I remember Ken Scott and I, during the, the book tour days after his autobiography, we flew into Nashville together because there's a couple of events that we were both doing. And Carl picked us up at the airport and took us to one of his studios first off before we can even get to the hotel. And he played some Super Tramp. Ken says it's probably the best record he's ever done, and he also says it ruined him because he never thought he could do that good again. But that being said, so he plays it on a Phantom Focus system, and we listen, and it's amazing that you can hear. If you go two degrees off to the left, you can hear that two degrees off to the left. So that being said, Ken goes up and he listens, and he turns around and smiles, and he says, I never heard that edit before. Uh. <laughs> Because, of course, they used to mix in pieces before automation and then just edit everything together. No, he had never heard it before, and the Phantom Focus system made it apparent. Or at least to him, 
Yeah. So that actually happened to me the first time I heard it too. Um, I went over to um, Marty Powell's studio to hear a system that Carl had put together for him. And I think it had the um, Tannoy gold monitors in his system. But I remember when I sat down and listened to some music, I just had this sense that like everything sounded three-dimensional and it felt like, you know, the, the strength of the sound, the solidity of it felt like I was listening to music like I was sitting in front of a granite wall that was 20 feet high right in front of me. And I was listening to the music come out of that. That's just how it felt to me. You know, it was super solid, but there was, um, I put on a, a project I'd been working on and doing a mix for and along came the bridge and there was a triplet rhythm that I clearly heard in the bridge that I never even knew existed. So it was almost, I don't know what it was, but it was something was in there that was like a, a totally musical part that I didn't even know was in there when I had created it. That's what good monitoring will do. Yeah. So, I mean, of course that begs the question. I think people, people want to ask tough questions and they want to say like, well, if you can't hear it out in the real world, what does it matter? But I think that it does matter. And I think we can hear it. I think there's a lot more that we can hear when we're on a, a more of a consumer system that we can get right when we mix it on a really good set of monitors and, you know, more than that too, is just, it's like, uh, you know, before we started this interview, I had to, I had to wipe down my, my glasses, my reading glasses here a bunch, cause I got some stuff on them. Why would you want to go around with, you know, foggy glasses on the whole time? If you could actually just have, have them be really clear and see clearly, you know, it's the same thing with sound. It just makes it easier to make decisions and make choices and, and not have to second guess yourself while you're doing it. You got rid of your console. So what are you using for preamps now? Um, so I have a collection of preamps. I have um, a series of old Calrec PQ1161s that I bought years ago. Those sound great. Um, and then I, I got a, um, a Cappy 11 space 500 rack. And I've filled that with Spectra 1964 STX modules. Mm. So I have a, a bunch of the STX 100s. Um, I have a 100D, which sounds really good. Um, and then a pair of their 500 EQs, which um, I haven't been using a ton, but but I, one of the things I really want to try is mixing, where I'm mixing in Pro Tools, but then I go out through a pair of these 100s with the 500s on it and do a little bit of a smiley face curve. And then into a pair of the... Um, the C610 comp limiters linked together. So that's something I, I'm excited to try. When do we stop trying stuff, Bobby? Yeah, right. If only. <laughs> when are we there and we've got all the answers and we don't have to try any more new stuff? I have a friend that has a unique way of doing that. He'll record everything in Pro Tools and then when he mixes, he will bring everything out, not everything, but he'll bring his stems out into a separate outboard signal chain. So he has one specifically for bass, he has one for snare drum, he has one for kick, and his mixes sound fantastic. The only problem is it takes a while for him to set it up, even though it is pretty static, it still takes a while. And then it does change from day to day, maybe a little, maybe a lot, depending on the voltage that day, depending on you know the how some components age. Well, it probably changes a lot less than it used to 30 years ago. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. But even so, that's above and beyond to me. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's cool stuff. And I, I think with the commit feature in Pro Tools, that can be pretty cool where you can do the outboard processing, but then just commit those tracks. Because maybe, you know, when you come back and do a change later, you know, you probably don't need to go that far off from where you were before. You know, maybe you just need to raise the level or or add another EQ and, you know, further sculpt that sound. But um, I haven't tried doing that stuff. I'm I'm excited to try that a little bit. I'm I'm mostly excited with my studio now about playing more music myself, mm. writing, playing with friends, you know, that's the kind of thing that got me into this in the first place. And um, I'm excited about having a lot of inputs and a lot of instruments mic'd up and ready to go in the studio so that you can, you can just create as fast as you want. I've been getting into more, more into synthesizers too. I got a couple, I got three of the Behringer synthesizers this, this year. Wow. The uh, the the Deep Mind Twelve is very cool for doing overdubs and the um and you know other things, but it's just a great, really great um, ethereal sort of pads and all kinds of stuff. And then the Model D is their Moog, you know, uh, Mini Moog emulator, um, and and the um, the the Pro One, the sequential circuits. Oh yeah, emulation. That stuff's really fun. I got to learn how to get it into my workflow so that you know. I don't have to stop the train every time I suggest that we should use it for an overdub, but it's fun stuff to play around with. Yeah, it's very cool when you can have stuff just plugged up and ready to go. That's the thing that always stops the flow. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I um, interviewed John Fields, that was one of the questions I asked him was, you know, basically just about recording a lot like that. And he just said, you absolutely have to have stuff ready to go. And you have to have a drums, drum set already mic'd up. You have to have each instrument ready to record if you want to just jump around and work quickly like that. And I think we do that when we do sessions, you know, tracking sessions, a band comes in, you go through these, you know, day or two of setting everything up in the studio and getting it to that point. But then when the band leaves, you know, a lot of times you tear it all down again. And then when you finally have a weekend to yourself and you go into the studio, you're like, oh, I'd really love to record everything. Uh, nothing's hooked up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole thing with analog tape. I, I did a record well, it's four or five years ago now, a blues record, and the artist insisted on doing it on analog tape. And it was, yeah, I don't know, it, it marginally sounded better, but uh, not substantially. But the big drag was it kept on running out of tape. So in other words, there'd be a five-minute song and there'd be four minutes and 50 seconds of tape left. And it's like, well, wait, we got to roll that off, put another reel on. In the meantime, you know, everybody's getting cold and you can't maintain the energy. And it was just oh, yeah, making me crazy. Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny to talk about how, you know, Pro Tools is the, is in that respect is more seamless, uh, more transparent in the studio than tape is. Because a lot of times tape gets all the credit for being transparent because people don't go back and re-record everything. They make decisions on the spot. You know, you got to get it right. But you're right. I mean, Pro Tools um, and recording in, in the computer gives you that instantaneous, you know, you could just press record. Do you ever get sessions from people where they never make a new um, session for the next song? They just record from left to right, you know, for an hour worth of, of takes. <laughs> yes. And so, but I mean, that can be a great way to work for some people, you know, where you just don't even have to think about, um, you know, starting the next song. You just let it roll. Are you doing mostly bands? 
I prefer doing bands. I'm um, that's the stuff I like to do. I love. I have to admit, I love tracking sessions. There's something really fun about getting everything going with all the musicians and going for it and, and, you know, getting to experience a performance in the studio. I love doing overdubs too. You know, I love guitar days. Those are fun, but you know, the more you separate that initial tracking session from the overdub stages, the more I feel like a record just begins to unravel. You know, you lose touch with what you're doing. I've been really getting into um, David Lynch recently. I've been, uh, we just finished watching Twin Peaks and I, and I actually bought his book called um, Catching the Big Fish. And he talks about his creative process. And he, he mentioned something in there that really struck me, which is that everything begins with an idea. You start with an idea. And as you, as he would finish a film and work on it, he says the, the critical element is to always go back to that original idea, that, that first thing and keep rediscovering it and making sure you're aware of it as you go. And I thought about that. And I was like, yeah, that's what we do in the studio. And we keep learning that lesson. It's like, sometimes the original idea is that demo recording. Yeah. And you, you always have to keep revisiting it to make sure that you're not, you know, losing the vibe. Sometimes it's just that original tracking session and just not waiting for ages to do an overdub or mix it, you know, stay in the moment and keep, keep getting back into that original or the rough mix, you know, the rough yeah, mix had yeah. that, original idea. I used to work with an artist, this is way back, who was brilliant, but also had too many ideas. So we'd finish a song and he'd go, you know, this would sound better reggae. So we'd do the whole <laughs> thing again, reggae. Oh, you know, it'd be better with the Latin feel. And we'd do it again, the Latin feel. And, and we'd do four or five different versions. Always come back to the first one when it was all said and done. Yeah. I played in a band with a guy who said every song could be better reggae. <laughs> but he was a very nice guy, but he was also the same guy that would uh, accidentally flip the beat around and he'd play his guitar chunks on the one and the three. <laughs> <laughs> I won't name any names. How's your podcast and all doing? Uh, podcast is doing great. So for your listeners, my podcast is called Recording Studio Rockstars. And um, Bobby, you've been a wonderful guest on the podcast. Uh, it's interviews with producers and engineers and um, musicians, and we just talk about making records in the studio all the time. And it's going strong. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I've gotten wonderful emails from listeners over the past couple of years during the, you know, the kind of state of lockdown. And people just, you know, said, I, you know, I was just looking, I thought maybe I'll see what I can find. And then they discovered the podcast. And, you know, it was very transformative for a lot of people as far as getting them very excited about making great records in their studio and all the stuff they've learned. So that, that always feels good. You know, you can find out more about Lidge at toyboxstudio.com, his podcast at recordingstudiorockstars.com and the save home studios initiative at savehomestudios.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's inner circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>